0: My uh my my slides. Um Joe and Abby Casey, where where are you? We got one more Bible up here in the front. Come on up, guys. I just want you to see just two very good looking uh, people here. Um yeah, there you go. Thanks. So this is Joe and Abby Casey, and um at our ministry moment I wanted to update you on what's happening with our children's church. So if you remember several months ago. Uh, Bev Schnobrick, who oversaw our children's ministry next door uh, during our 1030 service, she stepped aside, and <clears throat> we really were at a place of, okay, Lord, how do we replace someone who's been here for 20-something years and has done just an amazing job, and who do you have next for for this position? And through prayer and several conversations and, and even some some questioning if, if this was the right decision, uh, the Lord gave us Joe and Abby Casey, and so I want to introduce to you your new children's directors, uh, Joe and Abby Casey. You can give them a hand. So over the last several months, Bev has been um, helping them take over and finding their own identity and, and the way that they're running things over there. And the, the leaders that have been over there that have been serving have nothing but just amazing things to say about the two of them. Joe has brought a level of administration and organization uh, that has been a huge blessing for the leaders. Abby brings the great dynamic. She's a school teacher, so she's awesome with the kids. Both of them are already tied in with many of our families in the church. So, uh, several of you may not know, but this is uh, this is uh, Rebecca Schroeder's sister. And so uh, we're keeping keeping it in the family here a little bit. And and uh, Joe actually um, has interned here before, and he's interning right now. He's here three days a week, and we've folded in this, the children's church position uh, into kind of a non-paid staff uh, thing right now. And um, he's here three days a week organizing and getting ready uh, for children's church. And so we have an email if you want to contact him, SBC Truckee, uh, SBCKids at com on our website if you want to uh, contact him, if you want to serve and help. And This last week, Joe and Abby were in the office, and they put together the brand new curriculum uh, for the kids. They're starting in Genesis this month, and it's been pretty awesome because I know Joe, to see Joe just super excited about cartoons and, and kids' pictures. They, they put together these awesome binders uh, for all of the leaders, and just to see them excited about the ministry, excited about loving your kids, and teaching them the gospel, they are passionate about teaching your kids the gospel, but one of the things that Joe really is passionate about as well is equipping parents and other adults uh, to, to be ready to do that as well, and so I wanted to, to let you guys know that this, these are your new directors, this is the, these are the faces, uh, so we're obviously only bringing on good-looking people, and um, <laughs> so Joe wanted to say a couple things to you, and then I'm going to pray for him.
1: Well, I just want to uh, offer a, a quick thank you to our helpers and our leaders. Um, I made a list this time. <laughs> Uh, Bev's not here. She was at the first one, but I want to thank Bev one more time for all the guidance that she's offered us up front and getting us going and helping us start uh, the, the children's ministry and finding, like Jesse said, finding our identity in there and really helping us out. Uh, Carol Anderson has been a huge help. Sandy Hoig, Kathy Heilig, Susan Bailey, um, and Dave Robertson, who had, had covered for me last week because I was out with an illness, and uh, that guy just shows up with a with a tremendous attitude every week, and he's, he's very good at what he's doing over there. So we have um, a really good uh, core group of teachers over there that we're excited to get to know better and work with more in the future. And Jesse ha- did mention about our new curriculum, Generations of Grace. It's released by John MacArthur's church. Uh, I don't know if that's good to say or not. But uh, the stuff is, is solid, and it's comprehensive. Uh, I think the teachers have seen those binders, and they're really excited about the new... The new curriculum, um, or we do have office hours now. So I'll be in the office uh, three days a week—Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays—from uh, nine to three p.m. So if there's anybody that wants to contact us or even stop by to take a look at that curriculum, uh, with any questions, uh, SBCKids at SBCTruckee.com. Anything? Thank you. Cool.
0: So the, um, one of the things you saw about that curriculum, it's super biblically based. One of the things that Joe shares along with the rest of our staff uh, is a deep conviction to be teaching your children the Word of God and not just entertaining them, uh, but doing a good job teaching them about who Jesus is and that Jesus loves them and cares for them. And so I'm really excited for them, really excited for our kids. I have four kids, so, you know, I'm personally invested in this as well, so don't screw this up. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what we're going to pray, yeah. So we're going to pray for him, And uh, again, if one of the things, too, that we're praying for is just for a few more guys uh, to help step up and serve alongside Joe and Abby. And so if you're, you're a guy here, we take the girls as well. But just an emphasis on, on male leadership. We'd love to have some dudes step up and, and help out next door. Please contact Joe. And we're going to pray, and then we're going to have a mass exodus of, of kids here. Lord, thank you for Joe and Abby. Thank you so much for bringing them to us. Uh, Lord... Um, You're gracious and good. I pray that you equip them, continue to empower them and impassion them, Lord, to teach our kids, Lord. And would our kids please, Lord, grow up to know you uh, in a deeper way and fall in love with you, stay with you, and that you would give them lives that are blessed under the the reign of the gospel. And, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here in the room that you're ministering to in their heart to help serve, Lord, that they would uh, go ahead and just jump on over the fence and dive in. And we trust you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, head on out with Joe and Abby. Yeah. So if you're normally a parent and you normally don't, you don't have to escort unless your kids want to, because Joe and Abby will help out. But give you a few moments to to get out of here so you don't distract me. We're pretty blessed to have as many kids as we have. Amen? Yeah, thankful for it. Keep doing it, whatever you're doing. Um, John 12, verse 27. uh, Encourage you to stand with me as we honor the word of the Lord together as a family. One more time. John 12, verse 27. Now, Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the title of the message is This Hour. We've actually alluded to this several times. I've I've spoke about it several times and um, found it fitting to just kind of spend some time uh, trying to put the weight of the reality of the fact that the hour for Jesus to die has come. And for the last 11 plus chapters, Jesus has eluded this hour uh, that has come upon him, that he says that the hour's here and he can't avoid the hour. In fact, Jesus started out his ministry, if you remember, at the wedding of Gethsemane. And, and at the wedding, if you remember, Mary comes and mentions that the party has run out of wine and, that she wants Jesus to do something at that wedding. She doesn't probably know exactly what. And Jesus mentions to her, well, why are you speaking to me? My hour has not yet come. So we see from the very beginning of this gospel, Jesus is alluding to the fact that there's an hour coming and that that hour is not yet. And he's been anticipating and building towards this particular hour. And now the hour is upon him. And I want to share this morning, uh, again, as I shared, just, just to try to Put uh, a weight upon us of of what this means for Jesus, and what it also means for us. In order to understand this hour and what it all entails, I wanted to share with you, as I have in the past, several prophecies predicted in the Old Testament of the weight of what would happen within this hour. Because we're no longer uh, seeing Jesus teach like we have, we're not seeing the miracles. Those things have passed in the Gospel of John. The remainder, the remainder of this is this hour. The remainder of John is this hour, and so it's important for us to see uh, that this is something that Jesus, not only has Jesus been anticipating towards this hour building up, but the Old Testament is building towards it as well, that this time would come. Uh, So let's just go over some of these a little bit together in brevity. I don't have the verses all written out for you, um, so if you are fast with your phone or if you're fast with your Bible, you can turn to these verses because I am going to read them. One, we see that Jesus will be pierced as an act of grace. Uh, It says to us here that that in verse 32, when I am lifted up, speaking of the kind of death that he would die, uh, that he would die upon a cross that that would entail being pierced in his hands and in his feet and being lifted up on that cross. Zechariah 12.10 reads, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and mercy, so that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in Zechariah 13.10, it reads, On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness, speaking of what the cross would do. Number two, we're told that this is a shocking statement of love. In fact, uh, Isaiah 52.14 reads, As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, and so he sprinkled many nations. They were astonished at how he would look, that this beating would would be so brutal that Jesus would not be recognized as even a child of mankind. We're also told again in Isaiah 53, verse 5, this is number 3, that he would be pierced, especially for our transgressions, our sins and our iniquities, those things that we've done against God. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We're also told preceding this death in number four, that Jesus would be uh, literally taken away, as we see in the garden in Isaiah fifty-three 8. We're not there yet, but this again is what will happen within this hour. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, uh, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for for the transgression of my people, we're also told that he would be buried in a very specific place, Isaiah fifty three nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We're also told that he would be. Uh, that he would carry our grief and our guilt. So not only did he take our transgression, transgressions, but the guilt and the grief and the shame that we share. Isaiah 53.10, yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. We're also told in the Old Testament within this hour that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. Uh, in fact, the Bible is even specific in regards to uh, the amount of money he would be uh, Betrayed for Psalm forty-one nine, even my close friend, and whom I trusted, who I ate my bread, <clears throat> has lifted his heel against me. Zachariah eleven twelve, and he said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages; but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. In addition to all of this, we're told that his abuse would be extensive. Isaiah fifty verse six, I give my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Psalm 22, 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. In 22, verse 7, all who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Psalm 22:14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. they have pierced my hands and feet, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of this again prophesied hundreds of years preceding jesus death in addition to that we 're told that Jesus would speak something specifically on the cross psalm thirty one five into your hands, I commit my spirit, and we 're also told that in his death on that cross, as was customary to break the bones of one dying on the cross to ensure their death, that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. I think it's important for us to understand that the hour that Jesus is spoke, speaking of here is an hour that has been anticipated in the Old Testament, and it's an hour that Jesus has been anticipating for all 33 years of his life, and the hour is here. and And, and we're told that that this hour is not something that is lost upon Jesus. It is not just a frivolous thought he hasn 't entered into this hour uh, with with a big smile on his face in fact, in verse twenty seven he says now, now is my soul troubled. This is the second time we see an anguish this anguish, this emotion of Jesus, the anticipation of bearing your shame, bearing my guilt and experiencing God the Father's wrath and being separated from him caused Jesus to be moved in a very emotional, very visceral way. The first time we see this word troubled is actually when Lazarus died. It says in that particular place that, that he was troubled, he was deeply moved. And then again, we'll see it when Jesus is betrayed, the same emotion in John 13, 21, when Judas betrays Jesus, he's moved. This word literally means to shake up, or disturb. It's used in the Bible figuratively to speak of severe spiritual and mental agitation. The kind of emotion that Jesus is feeling is one that he feels on the inside that if, that is affecting him to a degree physically. He, he's disturbed. He's upset. He's unsettled. The, the word actually has some definition within it that, that in a sense he's, he's horrified for what he's about to experience. The hour is an hour that it, that is is deeply moving for Jesus, he's emotional, and he's not detached. I think it's important for us to see <clears throat> sometimes when we read the text that Jesus, Jesus didn't just do these things uh, as a robot moving through time and space. That he, he, in his humanity, felt what he was doing. There's a quote I have here for us that says, The man who was weary at the well and wept before the tomb does not automatically or casually go to the cross. The flesh shrinks from this awesome death. Here the anguish, the longing of Jesus to avoid the cross is boldly recorded. But there is no turning back from the decision made in the councils of eternity. Jesus has come in loving obedience to the Father's will, and every move of his ministry has been a response to that plan. That faithfulness has brought him to this hour. And there will be a harvest. And there will never be a harvest if he does not go. The Greeks will never know unless Jesus completes his mission. For this purpose he has come. So the trembling, questioning cry, Father, save me from this answer, is answered by the Son's decisive prayer of obedience, Father, glorify your name. That name has been entrusted to Jesus, and now in his last costly act, he will lift up that name above all other names. Jesus is emotionally attached in this situation. He knows that what he's going to experience is going to be painful. It's going to be bitter. And the thing that amazes me is when he went to the cross, he had your name on his mind. For for the love of you. That's why the Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy was the joy of knowing that you would not taste that death and that pain because he would taste that death and that pain. Now, by way of application, I think it's important to just at least mention that this anguish of Jesus, it's actually told to us in the rest of the New Testament that in a way that you and I will share in that anguish. That as Jesus had anguish, that you and I would experience anguish. In fact, as Paul was equipping young Timothy to take over uh, the church of Ephesus, Paul says this to Timothy, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share... And the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. He says, share in that suffering. 2 Timothy 2.3 goes on and adds to it, share in the suffering of a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Timothy 4, five, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Now we know that Paul is equipping Timothy, who's a pastor, but, but by extension, you are a minister of the Lord. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been, you've been called to do ministry. Right, my, my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So we're all in this together. And if that's the case, to some degree or another, you will experience suffering. You'll experience the same kind of anguish to a degree that Jesus experienced. Some of that anguish will come in the form of fighting your own sin or your own demons. Some of that anguish will come in the, lo- the loss of a loved one. Some of that anguish will come just from wrestling through in other people's lives. In fact, the Bible actually teaches that when you go through a particular kind of suffering and you exit that suffering, you're to take what you've learned to comfort those who then go through similar suffering. I've seen over the years God use things in my life that I've gone through to, to then on the back end say, hey, listen, I, I think I understand what you're going through and to comfort that person and to love that person. And I share that because I think it's important for us to understand as we, we move on to Jesus' response to anguish that we also look and see that this should be our response to anguish. Someone said to me this morning, they shared with me some, uh, some personal things that were going on in their life, and, and they, they said, life is tiring. We just came out of uh, 2017, just came out of a busy Christmas season, came out of a New Year's, right? Was anybody busy during that season at all? Anybody a little stressed out? How was your 2017? Was it a good 2017? I hope it was. But if you think about it, in some ways it was probably probably pretty tiring. Maybe a little exhausting, a little taxing. Or, or when you think of one thing you shouldn't do, even though I'm going to encourage you to do it right now, don't try to think about everything you have to do in 2018. Because <laughs> if you think about all of 2018, you start to, Start to get a little twitchy, right? Oh, my gosh. I might not even have to tell you to think about all of 2018. I might just say, what do you got to do this week? And that might be enough for, you know. Amber came up to me after sharing twice in the announcements, and she said, I can't believe you do this every week. <laughs> and, and, because, and she knows because, and same thing with Joe. When Joe was up here, he was, he was nervous about sharing. And, and I said, man, it's no big deal. And he's like, well, you've done this like a million times. But the reality is, is every time... Every time I leave this pulpit and then come into work on Monday, I have to prepare and something, something. Because I'm going to stand up in front of a couple hundred people every Sunday, and if I'm not prepared, you probably will know. <laughs> and then I look like a fool. And so Monday, they're, they're, if I think about it, I, start get, I will start getting stressed out. Right, And the reality is some of that stuff, it can be anguish to the soul. And there should be a response to your anguish, whether that anguish is little, whether that anguish is fighting sin, whether that anguish is dealing with a marriage that isn't quite working or dealing with finances that quite aren't working. Whatever that anguish might be, there's a response. And Jesus has a three-part response here. The first response of Jesus in his anguish is he cries out to God the Father. He prays. Now, we know we should pray. And oftentimes, just like Jesus in this moment, uh, we are usually our best at prayer when we are in some kind of spiritual anguish or moment. When the hour is upon you, you start to pray, right? Uh, One of the things I never like to get in the mail is one of those envelopes that looks like like it's from the IRS because they come in like this cognito kind of like, but then it says something about franchise tax board or whatever. I got one of those, I got one of those one day, and I was like,
1: <gasps> anguish,
0: God, dear Lord Jesus, I pray there's nothing in here, I don't it, and then you open it, I can't remember what it was, but it was It was no big deal, praise God, you know, but in those moments, you pray, right? And Jesus is showing us that this is a correct response, pray. If the hour's upon you, and and, and you're starting to feel stressed out, and you're feeling the anguish of the moment, you should speak to God the Father, as Amber has shared, Uh, there's no better time than now to speak to God. As she shared about, I think it was Luther, who said, I am so busy today, I must spend at least three hours in prayer. You know, his response was, my schedule's busy, things are tight, and so it only makes sense to speak with God more. And sometimes it's lost on us that Jesus came and lived this life to come to this hour that you and I would have a relationship with him, that we would have access to him, that we wouldn't have to do things on our own. You know, one of the things that over the years when I've seen someone come across the anguish of that hour that, that, uh, that a, a good-intentioned, uh, loving Christian has said in that moment of losing a loved one or something else is, is that, that kind of phrase that we, we think we understand, we think we're interpreting correctly uh, when we share something along these lines, right? Um, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, that's just not true. Uh, And for those of us who love the word of God and we know that God has an intention in what he said and and the importance of understanding what scripture is saying so we don't abuse it, does anyone know what that particular passage is speaking about? It's temptation. You know, when Jesus says, I'm not going to give you more you can handle, he I'm not going to put sin across your path. He's not going to do that. But if sin does come across your path, you know that you can overcome it. You can overcome sin. You can say no to sin. And Jesus says, I'm not going to put something in front of you that you're not going to be able to handle. But when it comes to life circumstances, Jesus indeed will give you more than you can handle. Because if you could handle it, why in the world would you need Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. Then you can give credit to yourself for overcoming that. Well, look at what I did. But rather, God will put things in your life, I promise you this, where you have to look to heaven and say, Lord, I need your help. That's why he came to be your helper, to give you the helper so that you don't have to live life on your own and you don't have to overcome things by yourself. If you're a parent this morning, you should praise God. You don't have to do that on your own. If you're married this morning, praise God. You don't have to do that on your own. If you are alive and breathing and have a job, praise God. You don't have to do it alone. Jesus came to give you that intimacy, to cry out to him, to, to ask for help and, and to lean into the shoulders of Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 5.7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, if Jesus cried out for help, who's God, how much more so do you and I? The second response is Jesus' honesty in prayer. It's okay to, to say, Lord, I, I'm, I'm troubled. This hurts. Save me. Has anyone had that kind of prayer with God? Just get me out of this situation, Lord. I, I don't like it, but we have to understand something. If, if Jesus is going to give you more than you can handle, it's okay to get out of that situation, but, but you also have to know it's okay if he leaves you in it. It's okay. Some of the best stories come from from Jesus not removing you from the fire, but meeting you in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's another figure in there. They're walking around in the flames. God wants to not just remove you from the situation. He wants to teach you something in it. He wants to meet you in it. Sometimes the best prayer isn't just God save me, but God meet me here. God speak to me here. And then thirdly, where we'll spend the rest of our time is in this moment of anguish. In this hour, Jesus has an unwavering commitment to glorify God the Father. We talk about this a lot at Sierra Bible Church, unapologetically so. It's one of our core values. In fact, it's it's one of the main lenses we say that if you're going to interpret Scripture correctly, you have to see that it's for the glory of God. Jesus is in this moment. He, he has, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll see him again ask, may this cup pass for me, that cup of God's wrath. Would you allow there to be another way, God? Would you get me out of this situation? And yet, not my will, God, but your will be done, that you would be edified, that, that you would be glorified. He's radically committed to the glory of God, that God would be seen as magnificent, that he'd be seen as the center of the universe. Not the sun, not you and I, not, not what you do, but God. What's interesting here in the statement is as Jesus cries out as he's in anguish and he prays to God the Father, God speaks. And God speaks and says, he says this, I have glorified it, past tense, and I I will glorify it. What's interesting about this is is the I have glorified it is Jesus saying, look at what I've done. He's he's actually speaking of the infallible proofs that Jesus has performed in his life, the miracles. One of the ways that, that we know that Jesus is who he said he he was, is not only because he taught with such authority, but because he performed miracles, performed miracles that were prophesied of in the Old Testament. And so God is saying to Jesus in the moment, he's saying, hey, I've glorified your name. But then he's also, in a way, he's prophesying and comforting his son. I will glorify it. He's saying, in essence, I will resurrect you from the dead. I will glorify it again. Well, the question I think that that we can ask in this regard is, is how does Jesus in this moment glorify God the Father? How How is it that Jesus is going to ensure the, the great glory of God's name in this hour of his death and eventually his resurrection? And I think he shares these things with the text. Verse 31. He will judge the world through the cross. He mentions it here. If you read with me uh, one more time. Now is the judgment of this world, he says. What does this mean? Well, first of all, the world is a term for, for the judgment of the satanic system and all that is evil in the world. Right? There is a system in this world that is anti-God, anti-Christ, and it is constantly moving to undermine the goodness of Jesus Christ. The world is constantly teaching your children, teaching us as a society, teaching us as a culture that we are not saved by grace, God does not exist, and you do not need him. What you need to do is distract yourself with all that other garbage that's out there and pretend it doesn't matter. And all of the messages, all of the media, all of these things kind of, kind of just, they, they're undermining the integrity of who Jesus is. And the Bible says that that world, the world as a whole, the system as a whole, is going to be judged through the cross of Jesus Christ in this hour. Now, Andy Homer was here this morning. If you don't know Andy Homer, Andy Homer, is a, he's a judge. And I shared this morning, he's not the judge, though. He's a judge, but he's not the judge. And Jesus is the judge. Let me read this quote to us this morning. The death of Jesus becomes the decisive dividing line between the condemned and the vindicated. If you trust Jesus, you are united to him, and his death is your death, and his condemnation is your condemnation. And if you trust Jesus... You stand, if you never trust Jesus, sorry, if you never trust Jesus, you stand condemned both by your sin and by your rejection of the offer of forgiveness. So God glorifies Himself by bringing the final judgment into history so that the Son can bear the sentence of condemnation for all who believe in Christ. This is part of what the angels were singing, as we did at Christmas time Glory to God and peace to men who come to Christ and pass from death to eternal life and never come into judgment. Here's what he's saying. If you believe in faith in Jesus Christ, the cross judges you, and that cross declares you in its judgment innocent of all of your sin, guilt, shame, and rejection of God altogether. But if one rejects the cross, they come under the judgment of the wrath of God. Let me ask you this this morning. It's a great question to ask in evangelism. Who would you rather take the punishment and the wrath of God? You, or would you allow it to fall upon the Son that is Jesus Christ? And if it falls upon Jesus, what is shared is, because of your faith, you're hidden within Jesus, it falls upon you, but Jesus took the brunt of it, and you're made innocent. Now, with that said, what that means is, to a great degree, we allow Jesus to be the ultimate judge and decider of salvation. This should relieve you of some stress, okay? It's a, for me as a pastor, it is, it is huge to know that I am not in charge of people getting saved. If I stood up here every week thinking that I had the power to save humanity, I would be crushed under that burden. But the reality is, is it's my job to boldly proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, and it's Jesus' job to save the sinner. And the Bible even goes on as far as to say that even within the church, even within God's kingdom, there will be wheat and tares, sheep and goat, goats. Sheep and goats. What he's saying in essence is, is when you go, well, well, who's the wheat and who's the tare? We don't know. Just because someone walks into a church building and makes a proclamation of a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't mean that they're actually a Christian. It doesn't mean they're actually part of the sheepfold. And in essence, the, the, the disciples ask, well, you know, what, what do we do? What do we do with this? And, and Jesus says, let them grow amongst each other, and I'll divide them at the end, because if you, if you meddle with this, if you try to judge this, you, you may pull up some of the wheat when you intend to pull up some of the tares. Here's the deal. Some people who come to church that look like a tare, that look like a goat, are actually sheep. And some people who are sheep and act like a sheep and bad like a sheep, smell like a sheep, they're a goat. And you go, well, which one's which? We don't know, ultimately. Now, the Bible tells us there should be a kind of fruit that comes from a person's life, but at the end of the day, we, we don't know. So, so what do we do? Love your neighbor. Well, which one? <laughs> Especially the ones that look like goats. So maybe they actually will become sheep. This is incredibly good news that that God would be glorified because we have a judge, and that judge judges through the lens of the cross. It relieves you of that kind of pressure. We're also told in verse 31 that Satan will be cast out, that on the cross, Jesus will decisively defeat our enemy. The next quote I have here before you is this in regards to Satan. I I think uh, it says, He failed. And in failing, he himself was judged and, defi- and decisively defeated. Jesus says in John 16 11, that the Holy Spirit is coming to convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The sense in which the ruler of this world was cast out or judged is that he experienced his decisive defeat at the cross. Not the final defeat, not yet, but the one that secures and guarantees the final defeat. Jesus did not give in. He kept entrusting himself to God. He did not sin. And therefore he bore our sin. And he stripped Satan of the one weapon that he had that could damn us. Namely the valid accusation of our unforgiven sin. That weapon is taken from his hand. He is disarmed. We have no unforgiven sin. The blood of Jesus covers our sin. All of it. Therefore the cross was the decisive defeat of the condemning designs of the devil. Satan cannot succeed. The victory is ours through faith in Christ. This is why John said in, a Reve- in Revelation twelve eleven, they have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb strips Satan of his one condemning weapon, our unforgiven sin. Satan can no longer point his finger at you and say you're not good enough because you are now. You're a child of God. Have you had those moments? And I say for me it's a moment because every now and then I, I, I don't feel like I have that moment where I'm like, I feel defined by my sin, but, but there's those incredible moments where you kind of you recognize and realize the forgiveness of Jesus, that you're no longer identified by your sin, that Satan can't accuse you of anything, and you kind of just smile like a kid and say, I'm a good boy. I mean, there's something even for my children, you can see it, that that when I tell my kids, you've done a good job. One of the things that I try to say as a father often is I am proud of you. I'm proud of you. And to see my kids' faces light up, to know that their father accepts them, that their father's proud of them, that that they've done something good, it's the same kind of feeling we should receive as Christians from God the Father. You've done a good thing. You're covered by the righteousness of Jesus, and Satan can't accuse you of anything any longer. And number three, if I go back to our list here, <clears throat> Jesus will draw un- people, all people to himself. And this is speaking uh, of the reality of, of, of that Jesus now has extended salvation, not just to Israel, but to every race, to every tribe, every tongue, every, every human being now has access to a relationship with Jesus Christ, not based off of any merit, not based off of how much income you have, not based off how tall you are, praise the Lord, not based on how how much money you have. None of those things matter. All that matters is whether you put your faith in him. That's, that's why the reformers said that, that f- it, salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. That your only need for salvation is to admit that you have need and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And we're told, that Jesus has in John ten sixteen, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also so they will listen to my, my, my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Here's good news. Jesus is still drawing people into his sheepfold. Do you know that Jesus wants Sierra Bible Church to grow? I say that because sometimes we, we get this idea that we, uh, we really like the group of people we're with. And I don't know if I want to add anybody else to that group. Cuz we're pretty cool right now. Do you know do you know that is the kind of anti-gospel garbage that has to be purged from the church? There should be no cliques within Sierra Bible Church. Shouldn't be. There should be no exclusivity within our relationships. We should not be narrow-minded in who we invite into our homes and into our places of of refuge. You know one of the reasons that the gospel was so powerful in Rome if you look back on history is because of the church's radical hospitality towards strangers. Rome did not know how to deal with it. Come into my home. Eat my food. Hang out with my kids. We don't have anything in common. If you don't know Christ, if you know him, soon we will. What do we have in common with all people? We're sinners. We all need a Savior. So, so to a degree, as, I, as I'm preaching, I'm molding and shaping the nature and the culture of who we should be as a church who God has intended the church to be when he says he'll draw all people to himself. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to draw all white people to myself. I'm going to draw only Israel to myself. I'm going to draw only women and children to myself. No, 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 no. I'm going to draw what? All people to myself. And if I share in Christ's suffering, I also share in his ministry, so I should be drawing all people unto myself that they would ultimately know who Jesus is. Because the the fourth point tells us, if you look, the fourth point says that Jesus, he's going to glorify God because he's the light of the world, but then it also by extension when Jesus says he's the light of the world, he says you're the light of the world. So now this, this mission of Christ is your mission. The church exists to see people come to Christ, and our motive must be clear, the motive isn't Draw more people to see our Bible Church so we can be bigger and we can tell people we're bigger and we can have a bigger bookstore and we can have a bigger building. And <laughs> No, it's draw more people to Christ because Christ desires more people to be saved that they would not know the fiery pit of hell. But they would know the loving, glorifying, awesome relationship that is accessible to all people in Jesus Christ. Our hearts should be burdened that people would know Christ and that those who know Christ would be excited about their relationship with Jesus. I'm telling you, man, like this week, I see Joe and Abby over here and, and being in Children's Church next door because they got an office over here and, and, and they're over there and they're coming over and they're look at these binders. I've never seen two people so excited about binders in my entire life. <laughs> and it encouraged me, it empowered me, it, it, it blessed me to see two people so thrilled to teach young children the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just, that's what it's about. That's what it's always been about. And we have our job, and and we've got our families, and and Jesus is encouraging us to be the light, to to reconcile people in, in relationship with him in those places, to be as Jesus is, radically committed to the glory of God. Right when Pete, the best, and I've said this before, the best compliment I get after a Sunday morning is when someone says, "We have a great God." Not, "Hey, that was a great message." Not, "Hey, that was awesome. You did a good job." Hey, you were very articulate. Hey, you were funny. No, 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 man, God's good. That that's the best thing you can hear from from anybody as a a minister or a a proclamation. Uh, of something that you've done for somebody, is, man, you, you show me the goodness of Jesus Christ. You show me how great God is. One day we all pass from this life, every single one of us, and the one thing that I care most about to be declared afterwards is, Jesse cared greatly about the goodness of Jesus, and Jesus' name will continue forever. That is the enduring legacy So I get excited about things when I hear, do you know where Sierra Bible Church was planted in the 1950-whatever-it-was? Does anyone remember? In a bar across from the high school. Because it was the only place at that time that was closed on a Sunday morning. You guys want to go plant a church at a bar? Why not? That somebody somebody was either faith-filled enough or stupid enough to say, let's start a church at a bar. And you and I are here because of somebody's faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that man cared more about proclaiming the gospel than he did maybe what even a community would say about a church being in a bar. And so we're fruit of that. Now, the beautiful thing with all of this is, is Jesus is radically committed and he prays to God the Father in the midst of this hour that is upon him. But, but in this hour, we also see something that I think is important for us as we get ready to close here in the message. And that is Jesus. Jesus shows us that we have a God that speaks. Especially in an hour of anguish. If you've ever been, had your back up against the wall in some kind of very hard situation and you've looked to the heavens and cried to God, I think most of you will know that God has been very faithful in those moments to answer you. And as Christians, we, we have, and praise God for it, we have a God that speaks. I think I have a... Um, that We have a God that, that, isn't, that isn't mute, but he's active. And I would argue this, I'd argue that, you know, I think the world is looking for a higher voice to speak to them. That's why we, we look to the presidency for... Some kind of leadership or politics is why we're so, uh, as a culture, entrapped within celebrity worship because we want somebody to tell us what's what's life deeper what's what's life's deeper meaning and purpose and and and, and, def- and, and what happens is our, we feed into that junk. This has been true all the way back in the Old Testament. If you remember in, in uh, the Book of Kings, First Kings, Chapter 18, there's a group of false worshiping idol worshipers. They worshiped a God by the, by the name of Baal. And there's this incredible scene in First Kings 18 uh, where Baal, the God of Baal, and the people who worship Baal get into kind of a verbal altercation with Elijah in regards to whose God is really the true God and, and, and if, if their God will speak. And so basically what we see is we see these prophets of Baal, they, they begin to, get, to try to manipulate their God to speak on their behalf. And if you remember in the story, they, they scream to get their God's attention. They sing, they dance, they, they try to light this big old fire. They even cut themselves to try to get Baal to speak. And then in a sad kind of tragic twist in the story, Elijah kind of sits back in observance and he says to them, Where's your God? And literally, if you look at this, this is basically what he says. Maybe he's in the bathroom. (laughs) Maybe he's taking a nap. Where is your God? He doesn't speak. Who knows how long these 450-plus prophets sang, worshipped, and called out for their God to speak with not a voice spoken. And if you remember the story, Elijah cries out and God speaks. And here we have a moment. Jesus is crying out to God the Father, and God speaks. God speaks in the situation, and the hardness of man, and the hardness of their heart, well, what do they say in response to this thundering voice that comes from heaven? It must have been thunder. That makes sense. Have you ever heard Thunder verbalize any words at all it seems almost ludicrous but th- this is where they're at they, they're trying to explain away the miraculous they're they they're, they're trying to to figure out w- what's happening in this situation and jesus makes it clear he says this voice was spoken not for me but for you and i think that voice is is to remind us that in our hour and in our relationship with God, what humanity needs more than anything else is to hear God speak. And God has spoken. He's spoken that he loves you, that he died for you, that he cares for you, that he's for you, that you're not doing it alone. God has spoken. I would also say this morning that if you're here and, and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you're wondering what it means to be in intimacy with God, simply cry out, God, speak to me. And I promise you, God will speak to you. If you're looking for reformation in your own life, if you feel like things are dull, take time to pray like Jesus and ask God's voice to speak to you. It's a prayer of mine every single week, just as Amber said, I can't believe you do this every week. Every single week, it's a prayer. God, would your people hear from you? I've learned over the years, you you can't manipulate it I tried screaming really loud for a season in preaching, thinking maybe that would do it. It doesn't work. I'll still scream on occasion because I get passionate, but I've gone through a process and learning that in preaching, the only thing you can do is prepare your best and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. And God has been f- way more faithful than he should have been, in my opinion, to minister to his people and to minister through his people. We have a God that is being patient, but we have a God that speaks. Amen? This last quote, and then all the guys can come forward. Speaking is central to God. God himself, his word and his speech commanded nothing to be everything. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. When God wants the dead to rise, he says, come to life and live. When Jesus wanted his friend to walk out of the grave, he spoke, Lazarus, come out. Even now, Jesus is holding together your molecules with his words. If Jesus were to stop speaking, you would stop existing. He holds us together by the words of his mouth. And this morning, we get to partake in communion together, and we'll hand out the bread first and then the juice, and um, the Bible teaches that if you're on the fence with your faith, you don't Partake in communion, that this is a serious deal. Communion is the time for us to remember the goodness of Jesus. And this Sunday, it's a time for us to say, Lord, you've, you've been faithful in that hour. You were committed to glorify God's name. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would use me to glorify your name. That I would be reminded that as you are the light, I'm to be the light. That I would shine brightly for you, Lord. And that, Lord, that you would speak to me. And so as we partake, we'll partake together. Be encouraged to know that Jesus is with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, for this reminder, Lord, that we partake in communion, that you were broken and beaten on our behalf, and your blood was shed, that we would know you. We thank you for that, Jesus. Please allow us to be encouraged and close to you in this time. In Jesus' name.
1: na